evening. Today's scripture reading is taken from Luke 16, 19 through 31. There was a rich man who was clothed in purple and fine linen and who feasted sumptuously every day. And at his gate was laid a poor man named Lazarus, covered with sores, who desired to be fed with what fell from the rich man's table. Moreover, even the dogs came and licked his sores. The poor man died and was carried by the angels to Abraham's side. The rich man also died and was buried, and in Hades, being in torment, being in torment, he lifted up his eyes and saw Abraham far off and Lazarus at his side. And he called out, Father Abraham, have mercy on me, and send Lazarus to dip the end of his finger in water and cool my tongue, for I am in anguish in this flame. But Abraham said, Child, remember that you in your lifetime received your good things, and Lazarus in like manner bad things. But now he is comforted here, and you are in anguish. And besides all this, between us and you a great chasm has been fixed, in order that those who would pass from here to you may not be able, and none may cross from there to us. And he said, then I beg you, Father, to send him to my father's house, for I have five brothers, so that he may warn them, lest they also come into this place of torment. But Abraham said, They have Moses and the prophets. Let them hear them. And he said, No, Father Abraham, but if someone goes to them from the dead, they will repent. He said to him, If they do not hear Moses and the prophets, Neither will they be convinced if someone should rise from the dead. Are we good? Can we hear me? Okay, there I am. All right. It's a blessing to be with everyone this morning. Thank you for, to the praise and worship team for leading us through uh, these songs this morning. Um, I think more, more and more I spend time with Jesus' parables. I think of them sometimes as Funhouse carnival mirrors. Do you know what I'm talking about? The ones that make you appear really long and tall or short and squished or bendy. <laughs> because all of them start with images that are incredibly familiar to us. We genuinely, when the stories start, you get this sense that you know the characters that are being named. You know the world that's being described. It's fairly easy to walk into the world that the story paints, and to take your place within it, the furniture seems familiar. But then all of a sudden, it will always inevitably take a turn. And this is the other aspect that makes me think of mirrors, whether it's at a carnival, or whether it's just a bad mirror in an apartment or in a department store. Because what happens when you look in a mirror and your image is all distorted? This is one of the first things you do. Even if you know the problem is with the mirror, you check in with yourself, don't you? You go, hmm, okay, good. <laughs> and I think that's what these parables do. They present you with something that seems familiar, and then it captures you and takes you up, and it makes possible some kind of new self-examination. And as Jesus approaches 
Um, Jerusalem. Earlier in the Gospel of Luke, he said he set his face to Jerusalem. He's taking on this prophetic task. And as he gets closer and closer, the, the mirrors he casts become more and more dramatic and more and more intense. Because as he approaches Jerusalem, he's coming more and more into contact with people who have taken upon themselves, often with the best of intentions, the vocation of being shepherds and caretakers of God's people. These are people who, who believe it's their job to evaluate the ideas of other humans. It's their job to know how to live as God's people. And so they're more and more resistant to doing that second part, checking in with themselves. They're quicker to say, that mirror is broken. And they've heard Jesus' stories. They've heard him talk about this irresponsible father who just doesn't seem to know how to teach his kids a lesson. And the stubborn son who, who is probably right for being angry with that father but is disrespectful and not coming in to the party. And they've heard stories about lost sheep and Samaritans who seem to serve and express the Torah in their body better than religious teachers. And it's not just naive, it's starting to become ridiculous and maybe even dangerous. This person is not talking so much about nation-restoring things. He seems to be talking about nation-destroying things. But... They're confident. And so they cut it down to size with humor. Before we get to this passage, it says that they're mocking Jesus. They're laughing at his silly stories. They see the way he lives. They know how he lives. He can't be righteous. Look at who he eats with. Look at the clothes he wears. Who is he? Where'd he go to school? And so Jesus begins into that, telling this story of Lazarus. And before he does so, he says in Luke 16, uh, 15, he says, uh, You are those who justify yourselves before men, but God knows your hearts. For what is exalted among men is an abomination in the sight of God. He um, has characterized them also as lovers of money, and that is connected. There is this sense in which Jesus says, you know what? You're too quick. When you hear what I say, when you hear what I teach, you're too quick to look to your neighbor and say, you guys are seeing this, right? You all feel the same? Okay. You're, okay. And that's another way, too, of not checking in with yourself. Not hearing God. And so he tells this story. He launches into it really pretty straightforward at first, something that's really accessible within the cultural context. He starts talking about these, these two people who are completely different from one another. He says, the rich man, and Jesus has been talking about money, so they, they know this guy doesn't have a name. As the story unfolds, he's the only person who doesn't have a name. So, okay, Jesus, you want us to be the rich man. 
You want us to put ourselves into that place, at least on the first pass, the first listen. Okay, Jesus, we know what you're doing. And then, of course, these people are going to seem by outward appearances to be, um, it's going to seem like it's so easy to judge between them, right? Just by looking at their life. The blessings and curse seem just so self-evident. You have a rich man who's dressed in fine clothes, and he lives every day. He's living every day like he's at a party. He's eating like he's at a party. He's dressing like he's at a party. It's fantastic, and he's responsible. He has this expansive private space that is well-kept and ordered, so there's a gate around it. And then on the outside of that gate, Jesus doesn't say how the other, how Lazarus got pushed there. Doesn't say how he got cast there. He's just there. Is this poor man. Totally the opposite. He is so desperate with desire just to eat the crumbs that fall from the rich man's table. But that desire is met instead with the hot, hungry breath of scavenging dogs who lick his sores. And because it doesn't matter if you're rich or if you're poor, if you're human, you're going to die. They both die. And when they die, the poor man is ministered to by angels and carried off to the bosom of Abraham. And the rich man, who has resources, who has other righteous, responsible people around him, doesn't need the angels. He's got his funeral. (laughs) He has people to honor him, to bury him, to take care of him. So, so far, this story is completely clear. And I can feel the, the Pharisees and scribes and other folks around him leaning in because this is something they're well-equipped to deal with. All right, we know what you're going to do, Jesus. Now it's time for the retroactive. Now we're going to look back at their lives, and we're going to hear stories about how the rich man interacted with Lazarus, what Lazarus did in certain days and during his lifetime that made him righteous, even though he didn't appear by human standards to be righteous. There's lots of people gathered around. It's our time. We can do this. Let's talk law. Let's talk covenant. Let's do this, Jesus. But that's when it becomes all distorted and absurd because Jesus doesn't stop. He keeps going. And now all of a sudden, we're talking about life beyond death. And the picture gets stranger and stranger. You can feel people almost tightening up and leaning in and maybe nervously laughing. What What is he talking about? And one of the interesting thing is, the more and more you sit with it, and I don't know if it'll strike you this way, I love that Jesus uses parables, it's, I think it's important to just walk around with them, and, and, and live with them, and meditate on them, and let them, let, do what Jesus believes you can do, which is be changed by thinking about these parables yourself. But, <laughs> there is this sense in which, at first, because you have this language of carrying Lazarus away, you feel like everybody's changed. But really, everybody stayed in the same place. We're on the other side of death, but everybody's location is the same spatially in the story. Lazarus is still gated in, but he finds himself gated into Hades. Which is not one of Jesus' more common words, right? 
Jesus, when he's talking about judgment, stories of judgment, tends to use the very real place of Gehenna. Right? And he tends to talk about it in terms of what is dis- things that cause you to be disconnected from people you ought to actually disconnect yourself from. They're good for being thrown in to the burning waste heaps of Gehenna. Right? He uses that, that kind of language. But here he uses this Greek idea of Hades. And there's a sense in which Lazarus finds himself there. He's gated in. He's locked up. In the, in the traditional lore of Hades, in some of the writings, there's a sense in which those gates, you know, not just any human being can open them or deal with them. So somehow, even though he's in the same location, it's become more serious. You, only certain spirits, only certain powers can transcend the threshold of those gates. And so Lazarus, here he is in the gates. What's that? What? I'm, I keep doing that. I do it all the time. I've done it all my life. Yes, the rich man. Sorry, forgive me. Um, And so the rich man's there, and Lazarus is still outside the gate, but now Lazarus is there near Abraham and with Abraham. And the story continues to get stranger and stranger. The rich man looks up. It says, Jesus says that he lifted his eyes, lifted up his eyes, and you can almost hear the uh, the psalm, or for us, we sing we sing a hymn that starts with that. Can we see that psalm real quick? Uh, I lift my eyes up to the hills. From where does my help come from? Right, my help comes from the Lord, who made heaven and earth. So you expect? Oh, here we go. Lord, how did I get here? Lord, what did I do? Lazarus is still apparently in the same place he was emotionally and spiritually as well. I did it again. The rich man is still in the place he was emotionally and spiritually as well. Uh, The rich man looks out and and he says that... uh, He looks out and he sees Abraham and he still behaves like a self-possessed man who's managing resources. And he says, Abraham, still not to Lazarus, Abraham, go tell Lazarus I'm in pain. Notice that too. His pleasure has been replaced with pain and he's worried about the pain. He's in torment, he's in pain, please have Lazarus go dip his finger in water and come and bring it to me. Now this is different, right? Now he wants to be like those dogs, licking comfort or meager helpings off of Lazarus's finger. It's all gone distorted and wonky. And Abraham says, we can't, we can't. Like there's a, there's a great chasm between us. It's fixed. I, I can't go in and out of that. You can almost hear the, the hidden Im, implication there. Abraham, Abraham, I'm Abraham. I'm not God. I'm not the one who fixes this place, who fixes heaven and earth. And as he continues to wrestle with this idea of being in pain, and he, he, he still... He's still thinking like somebody who's managing resources. Well, what does he know? Now he knows that this pain and this torment is here. But he still doesn't call out to God. Instead, he starts to behave like a savior. 
Now he's got knowledge he didn't have before. If we could just get this knowledge out to my family, I could set my family up, right? So, well, Abraham, if you're not going to have Lazarus bring me any water, at least you could go send him to my family. Tell them about this, right? This is good knowledge to give them so that they can change their life. He's definitely uncomfortable. He doesn't want to be there. He never says, God, how did I get here? God, where am I? And the whole time, Lazarus, who I am constantly calling, uh, confusing with the rich man, his name means God a help. God helps. So he's got God helps in his mouth. But he doesn't have it in his heart. And at this point in time, I think those scribes and those Pharisees, as they listen, are starting to sense maybe and hear certain scriptures. I think we have Deuteronomy 30 here, 11 through 14. For this commandment that I command you today is not too hard for you. Neither is it far off. It's not in heaven that you should say, who will ascend to heaven for us and bring it to us, that we may hear it and do it. Neither is it beyond the sea that you should say, who will go over the sea for us and bring it to us, that we may hear it and do it. No, the word is very near you. It is in your mouth and in your heart so that you can do it. Forgetfulness. Forgetting God. Jesus is here doubling down and leaning into these strange stories in the face of these teachers who are mocking him because it's part of his prophetic task, but it's, that prophetic task is within this, this abundant ministry of abundant grace. Jesus is not nation-destroying, world-destroying. He is gathering. He is saving. He is helping. And he wants the Pharisees to start to see the challenge and us to start to see the challenge. It's so easy to forget God even when God's name is in your mouth. I think we know this lostness, right? We live in a broken world. And so life and the experience of life, if you really think about it, is always this weird mix of equal parts Garden of Eden and Gehenna. And it's confusing to know what to do how to stay oriented. The story in its totality and its absurdity is, is a story not about the afterlife, but about disorientation in this world. Disorientation here. And Jesus is drawing us into this forgetfulness, saying, well, how do you orient yourself? Who do you call upon? Do you look your neighbor to find out, hey, is it okay what we're doing? Everything okay? <laughs> or do you call on God? And the more I thought about it and was thinking about, well, what, it, what how do I, how do I understand this sort of tendency towards self-justification 
and amnesia with God and disorientation. I had the weirdest uh, memory of a kind of contemplative experience I had at uh, one of my daughter's birthday parties, and it involves a pinata. So stick, stick with me with that, but I think pinatas uh, lent itself sincerely, earnestly, as a genuine metaphor for this. And I, listen, I'm focused on the metaphor the analogy, I'm, I'm not saying that, that pinatas are evil. Okay? <laughs> just, just, just hold this loosely. Okay? But think about what's going on with a pinata. You walk into the party, there is this, this big, beautiful, colorful, ornate thing hanging in the air, and the kids know either because they've been told or sometimes you just know intuitively, you're like, that thing's got something good in it, right? It's stuffed with candy. And at some point in time, they're going to have all the kids line up. And the kids are going to exert themselves uh, <laughs> to break this thing open. And when it breaks open and spills out, you are supposed to rush that candy. And you are supposed to get as much of that candy as you can. And inevitably, especially if you have sensitive children, <laughs> right? Some kids are more comfortable with the whole process than others. Some of them, because people seem to shoot up in those ages really differently times. Some kids are twice the size of the other kids. And you've got people who don't have candy. People are crying. <laughs> and what do, we, what do the parents do? There, there's a tendency, isn't there? It's kind of a weird tendency. But when the kids come back, there's a tendency to say, Oh, don't be so sensitive. It's just a game. Just, it's just for fun. But they had an experience of being told to fight over candy. Like, it's, it's weird. It's a weird thing to kind of exhort your children into. And I think, don't we do that? With games that are far more big and large, with the social arrangements in our world, things that are far more dangerous, Right? We have this nakedness that comes from God because we are not God, we're human. And that nakedness has a purpose. Right, It's made for the God who walks that garden, who wants to sit with us, be with us, show us how to bear God's image, be in relationship with God, receive life from God. But, but sometimes we cover up that nakedness. And we do it with all kinds of things, right? We get lost in the candy grab. We want to cover that up. And you do it too much, you start to edge people out. You start to have people outside your gate. Especially if those people's nakedness makes you remember your own. And you start to maybe forget about God. Expand the resources. Cover it over. And before you know it, your riches are the fire of Hades. And I think I know that. I don't have to put that on the Pharisees. I don't think Jesus wants us to. I don't think Jesus wants us to leave this as a religious argument. 
We know that disorientation. How many times do you spend a couple good years trying to do really good things, and then you find yourself exhausted and broken and forgetting who to ask for help? And Jesus tells this story about the man whose name is God Helps. He's exhorting them into checking in with themselves. Where am I? Where am I in this story? What ought I to do? And Jesus, in his gift of his own self in this life, that's what he's doing. He wants to shake us out of swallowing that pinata of of, of the candy grab, of cutting ourselves off from other people, of cutting ourselves off from God, of forgetting God. Don't be like the rich man. Don't be in Hades and not ask how you got in Hades. <laughs> or call out to God for help. And so there's this one Jesus now whose name means Yahweh saves can you can you see him as that can you receive that from him can you can you accept what jesus is showing you and where he's going to go and the way that jesus embodies this self-emptying love of god not taking in as much as he can but giving and loving and one of the things in doing due diligence, because I was legitimately concerned about angry emails about dissing pinatas, and I wanted to make sure I wasn't caught up in some cultural chauvinism, so I went and studied pinatas. And one of the fascinating things is that the oldest known pinatas, by some, some anthropologists write, were actually filled with seed. And at certain festivals, they would be shattered and broken, and those seeds would be carried by the wind to go into the ground and bring forth life. Not behind the gate, not with all the candy, not with a black eye that's all right because it's what everybody else does, but broken, given, set free from that game. How much we fail, I think, sometimes to realize that we are engaged in games that seem so, so real. And I think Luke, later in the story, makes it so clear that this is what he's trying to, that this is what Jesus is trying to bring out to us, and certainly it's Luke's as a disciple's own experience of being drawn into this story and to the good news of it and to res rescued by this God, a God who no matter how many times we forget him, doesn't forget us and continues to work and to minister. If we can see Luke 23 here, it says two others who were criminals were led away to be put to death with him. And when they came to the place that is called the skull, there they crucified him and the criminals, one on his right and one on his left. And Jesus said, they're going to be in Hades. <laughs> and I'm righteous. They'll find out. No, he knows, he remembers God. Maybe the only human being who ever truly has every day of his life. And he says, Father, forgive them. 
for they know not what they do. He brings them in the gates. Jesus doesn't have gates. <laughs> he's embracing people while he's on the cross. And they cast lots to divide his garments. And the, strip, strip him of his last bit all the way down to nakedness. And the people stood by watching, but the rulers scoffed at him, saying, He saved others, now let him save himself, if he is the Christ of God, the chosen one. The soldiers also mocked him, coming up and offering him sour wine, and saying, If you are the king of the Jews, save yourself. There was also an inscription over him, ironically, but oh, how true, that said, This is the king of the Jews. One of the criminals who were hanged railed at him, saying, You know, are you not the Christ? So save yourself and us. But the other, and if you think about it, I think this person's faith is amazing. I really do. I don't know what he saw. We don't get to know it. But he's seeing Jesus pray for forgiveness for people. He's seeing Jesus go to the cross. He's seeing Jesus being treated the way he is. He's seeing this sign above his head that says he's the king. And there's something about the way Jesus loves and remembers God that makes this person think, maybe there's something about this one. And he says, do not fear God. Do you not fear God since you are under the same sentence? He checks in with himself. He's able to look at himself and look at Jesus and see that he doesn't have what Jesus has. He says, and we indeed justly are here on this cross, for we are receiving the due reward for our deeds. But this man has done nothing wrong. And he said, Jesus, remember me. When you come in to your kingdom. And Jesus' promise comes back for this day. Not in the age to come. He said to him, truly I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. Yahweh saves Jesus. This is the simple but profoundly powerful and sometimes just difficult and always challenging grace of God. This is it. How do you know if you're in the garden and, and you're embodying this nakedness that can be there to help you connect with God and to connect with other people? Or if you're drowning in your own riches and keeping people out by being a self-possessed person? How do you know? Have the name of Jesus, not just in your lips, but in your heart. And if it's not there, ask God to help you get it there. And you wake up tomorrow and you do it again. Jesus, where am I? Help me know. Help me stay on the way. Help me follow you. Help me be like you. Help me be the seed that's split open and gives life to others. And you just keep his name in your mouth and in your heart, the name that is above all names. And there he is giving himself, always giving himself. Let's pray. Father, help us, Lord.
to receive the gift of your son, to be willing to check in with ourselves, to accept what we see, to see ourselves as you, which on the one hand is to see sin, (laughs) to see need, to see disorientation, to see confusion, and in another way is to see a person who's so loved that you give us your son, you come among us, you seek us, you call us, you go to the cross. It is grace and grace and grace and grace. Help us, Lord, to go deeper and deeper with Jesus, to have his name in our heart through the Holy Spirit, to trust that even when it looks ridiculous, impractical, that at least if we're honest about our nakedness, you know, we, we are, it's possible for us to be ministered to by angels. It's possible for us to be ministered to by you. It's possible for us to be embraced by you. Help us to hold on to that as confusing as it can be sometimes, dear Lord. And thank you for Jesus. Thank you that we get to know you through his love and his self-giving. Thank you for the truly good king that he is, God. And it's in his name that we pray for your mercy and your help and your love. Amen.